Welcome to Capital Conversations, the ERLC's podcast from Washington, D.C., where we help Christians imagine a new way to engage in the public square. I'm your host, Chelsea Soplick. Our conversations cover the policy debates and news shaping our world as we aim to connect our Christian theological motivations to political engagement in Washington. My hope for this podcast is that these conversations would foster a new way for Christians to engage in the public square. This week, my guest is Jeannie Mancini. Jeannie was appointed to the role of president of the March for Life in the fall of 2012. In this capacity, she proudly directs the small nonprofit organization's commitment to restoring a culture of life in the United States, most notably through the annual March for Life in Washington, D.C., held on the anniversary of Roe v. Wade. Jeannie has made frequent media appearances, including interviews on MSNBC, CNN, Fox, ABC, CBS, and others. Jeannie's writings have appeared in the New York Times, U.S. News, World Report, USA Today, and the Washington Post, and numerous other publications. Jeannie holds an undergraduate degree in psychology from James Madison University and a master's degree in the theology of marriage and family from the Pope John Paul II Institute for Studies on Marriage and Family. Jeannie resides in Northern Virginia with her husband, David. All right, Jeannie, welcome to Capital Conversations. I am just delighted that you are joining me today. Thanks so much for having me, Chelsea. I'm very happy to be here. Absolutely. So we are just days away from the March for Life in Washington, D.C. Can you tell us how the march got started and why it's such an important yearly event for the pro-life movement? Yeah. So the year after Roe v. Wade and Doe v. Bolton, of course, those Supreme Court decisions legalized abortion through all three trimesters until birth. And that happened in 1973. And the year after, on the anniversary, Nellie Gray, the founder of the March for Life, organized the first annual march. And so that was in 1974. And um, they anticipated, Chelsea, that it would be like a one-off, a two-off event since that Supreme Court decision was expected to be changed or corrected soon because it was one of you know, judicial activism, really, and people understood that, and they didn't think that it would stand for long. So the years went on, and Nellie <laughs> continued the march for 40 years, really, uh, and passed away uh, a little over 10 years ago when I started working with the March for Life. And of course, in that time when they expected the march to not be needed any longer. Um, The march, on the other hand, has sort of grown and grown and grown and become more youthful and more positive and energized. And so now it's the world's largest annual human rights demonstration and um, a very positive moment, even though there's such, as, as you know, there's such a somber feeling to it as well, just reflecting on the loss of life and the mothers that have um, regretted having been involved in abortion, et cetera. Thank you so much for that overview. I've been attending the march for well over a decade. And I think my favorite part is just seeing seeing the joy. It's such a joyful and kind march, even though it's a heavy topic. It's just one of the things I so appreciate is the tone of it. And I, I so appreciate the brave women who share their stories of regretted abortions. So how did you originally get involved in the March for Life? Well, I was working at Family Research Council in public policy, and I loved that job, and I was asked to join the board of the march, 
And so when I joined the board, I thought it would be just that. And then shortly after Nellie Gray passed away and we were, you know, really praying and discerning about a plan. And so in kind of a short-term plan, I stepped in and I planned on keeping my job full-time at Family Research Council. And then we'd hire someone younger and more energetic to be able to actually like run the march. And then, uh, you know, just over a series of months and just experiences in prayer and the board and everything, we realized that wasn't God's plan. And so I eventually quit my job at um, Family Research Council and worked full time. And now we've got, you know, a staff of 12 at the March for Life. So we've grown quite a bit, you know, in those years. But it was originally by being invited to join the board, much to my surprise. Well, we are so thankful for your leadership. You've led it incredibly well. So tell us about this year's uh, theme for 2020, Equality Begins in the Womb. Why did you choose this theme and why do you think this message is important for us to press into? Well, every year we try to be very discerning about what are the most cutting edge needs in terms of building a culture of life. And so, you know, we've had themes like adoption and noble decision, you know, really trying to help birth mothers realize how noble and heroic that is to choose that. We've had themes about science, et cetera. So this year we chose equality begins in the womb because equality, equal rights, equity, those are terms that we've heard a lot these past few years. And in the context of very important conversations, whether they be racism or, you know, related to COVID-19, et cetera, socioeconomic status, all of this, but where we felt like there was a real missing um, part of the conversation was the equality of the unborn child. And so we wanted to insert that into the conversation and, and sort of draw attention. Like there's a whole population of people that aren't treated equally and to use sort of the language of what's happening um, to draw attention to that. That was all prior to Dobbs being taken up by the Supreme Court, but it seems to fit in nicely <laughs> with the, that as well uh, with the course, you know, taking a look at Roe and taking a look at at least the ability of states to have pro-life laws prior to viability. Um, so we'll see, you know, what happens with that in June. I'm very optimistic, but that's where equality in the womb came from. I love that. One question I'm going to ask you about this. I think when I started working more full-time in the pro-life space, one thing that shocked me was sex-selective abortions. Can you speak a little bit to that and about the equality of little women in the womb? Yeah, it's sort of astounding. And when I was at FRC, I, I was able to do a lot more policy work. And I remember just reading, even in the United States, and this is like where the almost the least amount is happening, but in certain ethnic populations, girls in particular are there's like a gender side, like uh, that boys are more prized. And when the sex selection, um, when you're able to tell the gender before birth, there is some sex selection, even in our country. And you can look at CDC's abortion surveillance data to see that that's the case. I mean, it's, but you go over to places like China and India, and I mean, we're missing millions and millions of little girls. It's just horrific. And in China, it's so bad that they're looking at laws that will allow husbands to have 
like basically that two men can have one wife because of the fact that they don't have enough women to even be wives at this stage in the game. So it's, there really is sexual discrimination, even when it comes to abortion on so many levels, this would just be one of them, but abortion also negatively impacts women, but it's really um, an atrocity. And Chelsea, keep your eyes out for our theme video, because it does hint at this very issue of gender side, which you're bringing up here. Well, I will, I will definitely uh, look out for that and we'll link that in the show notes as well. Um, my husband and I are actually adopting from India right now. And so oh, I've learned, India. yeah, so it's much about on social. So I knew that you're in that yes. process and that is just yeah. fantastic. May God bless it. And Thank you. Um, yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah. We've, we've learned quite a bit about just the the preference, like you said, in China and India. And it's just, it's gut-wrenching. It's so sad. But uh, well, thanks for for drilling in there a little bit. It's such an interesting aspect of these conversations. And I really appreciate you you highlighting that. Um, so you mentioned a few minutes ago, uh, Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, the huge Supreme Court case that the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in, in December. Um, so as we prepare, um, we expect a decision likely in June. What are some ways that people all over the country can um, get involved, if they're not already, can get involved in caring for women and their children? Well, one of the ways that I think is most critical is to pray and fast. It's so simple, but sometimes we don't do it, right? I mean, even us Christians who know the power of prayer, but we know from scripture that there is tremendous power in prayer and fasting. And right before I went on this podcast, I found this note from um, the Sisters of Life, Mother Agnes. She's the founder of them. That's a Catholic order, but they're completely an order of nuns. They're completely focused on building a culture of life. And she'd written me this note back in 2017. It's the only note she ever wrote me. And she just reminded me of the power of praying and fasting for this, that it's a spiritual battle. And so that's sort of on my heart right now, especially this year with Dobbs. I think that can't be underestimated because we know that the Supreme Court justices have already voted that the decision's been made, but they can change that up at any point. We don't know what the decision is, but they could, whatever it is, they could change that up until any time that it's decided. Um, It certainly sounded very positive back in December. So that gives us a lot of hope. But there are so many things that each of us can be doing and we're each called uniquely, you know, whether it's to go pray in front of an abortion clinic or to work at a pregnancy care center to give to good pro-life groups like the March for Life or um, like ERLC. I mean, there are so many different things that you can do. So you could write an op-ed, you can run for school board. There are just so many different things. Consider adoption, consider adoption out of foster care. I mean, there are, gosh, just so many things. And we're not all called to all of that. It is a discernment process. But I would say to know that every one of us is called and to really pray and ask the Lord, what should I be doing every day right now? What is my mission to build a culture of life, particularly in this time? Because it's really, I believe, when we all come together and and surrender to that and then fulfill it to our best, you know, possible ability that we will build a culture of life by God's grace. I don't know about you, but it's, I don't know how we could do this work if it weren't just, you know, it's the work is the fruit of the contemplation, the prayer, the relationship with Christ. But I just would never, I can't even imagine having the right words or strength or anything without that kind of being the pillar, you know, that we're building it all on. That is so, so good. And I love that you you kicked that off with prayer instead of all these ways that we can do. Both are important, but I, I really appreciate that. 
I think a common misconception that I've I've heard a little bit is if Dobbs is decided favorably, you know, that's the end of abortion. Can you speak to that a little bit? I'm so glad you brought this up because whatever happens, well, let me say this. It's a historic year. It is a historic year, but it's like the first of many historic years ahead. So this is not the end. And I get nervous sometimes. So even if Dobbs is overturns Roe, that means that abortion legislation goes back to the states so that essentially the legislative branches in the states for the most part, will be making decisions. But also immediately what will happen at the federal level is that there will be battles fought at the legislative branch. And I would think soon in the judicial branch too, in other words, that other Supreme Court cases will come forward fighting this, you know. Um, But if Roe is overturned, it would still be such a tremendous move in the right direction. At least states could then enact laws that protect life prior to viability. You know, we could have laws like the Texas heartbeat bill and the Mississippi protecting life law. And whereas now states aren't even able to do that. And that puts us up there with countries like North Korea and China. I mean, it's it's crazy. The Any abortion is one too many, but the fact that we still allow late-term abortion in the United States is kind of crazy. Yeah, their human rights track records are not something we should be. Uh, we exactly. should be in the same group. Imitating with. them, yeah, exactly, exactly. Right. No, that's so helpful. So, so even if the best case scenario happens, there's still so much work to do. And I think it was Ryan Anderson actually that said that will be almost the start of a new pro-life movement, which I really, I really like that framing. So as we are wrapping up, the vision of the March for Life is a future where the beauty and dignity of every human life is valued and protected. How do we expand um, this movement for life to welcome and persuade those who might not yet see the dignity of the unborn? What a great question. So we don't have it now, but something we're updating on our website is how to dialogue with people who disagree with you. And so much of it is just hearing them and loving them, knowing that they're a human person with human dignity too. And I don't think I have like the perfect little answer there, but I do think that just living that human dignity, that in other words, that respect for human dignity and everyone that we encounter is is a key of it. And then I think, I'm just going to come back to really simply remembering this is a spiritual battle and that when the Lord does put someone who disagrees with you in your path to embrace that surrender and love that person. Um, You know, Abby Johnson's story was one of being won over by love. I mean, people brought her flowers. They were very kind to her, et cetera. And so that's it's like, that's the heart of what we're about. So just live that with people who disagree with us, which I don't always do very well. I mean, so I I don't want to sound hypocritical either. I try to, and that's the approach we try to at the March for Life. But I think that's the bar as Christians, that should be the bar. But I don't know. Do you have any other advice for that, Chelsea? It's a tough one. Oh my goodness. No, I I love what you said. We should be known by our our love. Um, Yeah. I, I think the only thing I would say is people aren't changed quickly on, on those really big questions. And so sometimes it does take many conversations yeah, to change a, really a heart and a, or a mind on those issues. Yeah, it's, I, I wish people changed quicker, but along obedience in the same direction uh, there yeah. for sure. Well, thank you so much for your time. And know that we are praying for you as uh, you lead, I guess, the 48th March for Life. 49th. 
49th. Okay. 49th March. Yeah. Well, that's great. Well, thank you so much for your work. And um, we will drop links to March for Life um, in our show notes so people can follow along. And will there be a live stream on Friday? Yes. Okay, live perfect. stream on Friday, also for our Capitol Hill 101 event on Thursday, and also for the Rose Dinner. But the Rose Dinner one, you have to pay for. It's 25 bucks. But yeah, live stream to everything. Well, people can tune in if they're not able to make it to Washington. But thank you so much for your friendship, your partnership, and your, your commitment to life. Well, thanks for having me. It's great to see you. This is Capital Conversations, an ERLC podcast from Washington, D.C. If you enjoyed today's show, send a link to this podcast to a friend or family member in your community. Be sure to subscribe to Capital Conversations so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, leave us a rating and review to help others find the show. Resources from today's episode are available in the show notes and at erlc.com. And in addition to listening to Capital Conversations, be sure to check out our other ERLC podcasts. The Digital Public Square airs every Monday, and its host is Jason Thacker, who is one of the leading voices on technology and culture. The ERLC podcast is our flagship show and airs every Friday. Lindsay and Brent give a rundown of what the ERLC has been working on that week, including updates on our work in Washington, D.C. Search for The Digital Public Square and the ERLC podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you so much for joining us today, and we look forward to being back together with you next time. 